0: This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller.
1: Welcome to the show. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the FCA DC launch. The panel featured Gary Buchanan, the Chief Information Security Officer at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. David McEwen, the Deputy CISO at the Defense Department and Angel Faniff, the CISO for the Army Software Factory. First, we hear from Angel Faniff of the Army Software Factory.
0: We recently got two new applications into production, which is huge. Our eTrick team, uh, which does land resources out in Hawaii, And our uh, Carrera team, which helps reservists find jobs so they don't have to drive into base, they can actually go on their computer at home and look for jobs. Second part of that is to be able to actually apply for the jobs. So this is huge. With that, we have also made connections with the Air Force reservists to be able to see if we can give them Carrera or how they can use it so that they can use our application and apply it to the Air Force reservists as well. The other cool things that we've done in the past, I don't know, a couple months, we had South by Southwest at the Army Software Factory, which was great. We were able to have a lot of our soldiers experience uh, talks just like this, where they're not able to get that exposure out front, be able to talk to vendors and other people within the DOD. And uh, we bought a ping pong table recently, uh, crowdsourced internally to help create a really great culture. So. We uh, look forward to having that ping-pong table uh, in the office. We had one when I worked at Kessel Run, and actually we got quite a bit of work done over passionate ping-pong sessions. So I look forward to that happening here in the Army. All
1: right, so you mentioned two apps that you kind of went from, I guess, to, to full production. Full production. Now, that went through the process. Since we're talking about risk and risk management and cybersecurity, maybe just give us a little bit more about what the process was that you got those apps through the cyber piece that DevSecOps if you will.
0: Perfect. Yeah. So we have a cohort that uh, soldiers and army civilians that we train internally they go through a boot camp. They come out and we do problem submissions. We look at the problems we decide to take on the problems and we build an application for it. So two of those teams were brand new teams. They had the problem submissions. They looked at the problem. They did the user interviews and then the team starts building. And security we have an awesome team. Shout out to ASV's Our application security validation engineers are actually pairing with the teams weekly. So they sit down, they have a pairing session, and they go line by line to make sure that we're meeting all of the controls and we're writing safe and secure code. Uh, The ASVEs actually went through everything with the Etric team and with the Carrera team. Uh, That then goes from we made sure the controls are done, we've gone through the pipelines, all the security scans are checked, we pair with our ISM, we connect with our PISM. we have our AOR signed up, we brief our AO, and the teams are actually able to go into production. And this can happen as little as in one day that we're able to go directly into production. It's quite amazing. And we have uh, so much support and great leadership around us to be able to make this Happen.
1: plenty more to talk to to angel but let's move to gary now gary i remember the first time i heard nga talk about the continuous ato and it was like that moment of like right head blew up so give us an update how are you guys looking at not just continuous ato but, but cyber and cyber risk one of
2: the big differences between nga and i think a lot of the folks here is we're we're, we're both dod and we're ic and so uh what nancy talked about this morning with the uh, Continuous ATO, uh, we've been working on for since, geez, uh, 2008. And that was when ICD-503 came out that said to move to the risk management framework uh, through uh, CNSS-1253 and uh, 853 controls. So we've been doing this a little bit longer than the DOD, and uh, continuous monitoring is certainly something that we have been maturing as we go. Uh, The continuous ATO uh, portion is... Only if you can continuously monitor your systems. I don't know where Nancy went, but I love you and and some of the uh, things that you said earlier uh, as far as the the bridge and the moat and the castle. And and I hope you don't have that patented because I intend on stealing that. So we've been moving along really good. Another thing that Nancy talked about uh, that's kind of new for uh, us at NGA or newer is we just passed our uh, CCRI. So we had a CCRI and we had a CSSP and a PKI inspection. In the past uh, month, 45 days, of course, that was six months of prep preparing for it, but we did pass, and, uh, and, and really a lot of things got illuminated from that in in challenges with uh, continuous monitoring. The piece that I, that I really want to talk about with that is the, the negative connotations that people have with inspections, uh, that they have with CCRI, CCORI. Any type of inspections that's done with you as, as a CISO, I welcome them. It goes back to my first job in the IC where I was a janitor and, uh, and I was cleaning a building that used to be called DMA, Defense Mapping Agency. And In that building, I'm six foot one, I used to be six foot two, um, but my eyesight, my vision is at a different level than some of the folks that I worked with who were generally shorter than me. And What I saw that needed to be cleaned and what they saw that needed to be cleaned were two different things, two completely different things. And when you have those inspections come in uh, that we just went through and we passed, I have to keep on saying that, we passed, the different mindset, the different look that someone's giving you at a different level is phenomenal. I mean, it really helps us look at some of the gaps that we have in our architecture, some places where we're doing well, but we can always do better. And so um, uh, I I just wanted to put that out that if you have an inspection, welcome it. Uh, What's the worst that can happen? You can be dragged through the mud for three years on the JW slides every week. And uh, that time is over. So uh, we're now passing.
1: First of all, congratulations, right? Let's give him a little bit of a round. Like We've got to recognize good work. Uh, Gary, I'm going I'm to put you on the spot, though. CCRI, just in case if all of us can't follow the, the acronym. Uh...
2: Sure, a Command Cyber Readiness Inspection. All right, and this is done by this Dave's is office, done right? By JFHU Doden. <laughs> And uh, this is uh, looking at both our sipper and our nipper fabrics. Um, now, I started the conversation with we 're both IC and DoD, so we also have TS SCI fabrics, which is not inspected by them but Tim Sidnor, I think, is out here somewhere he 's going to inspect us in uh, July on that uh, SCI fabric so
1: and without going to obviously lots of details, are you able to offer maybe a broad brush perspective on maybe some of those areas that they said, hey, that was really good, and some areas hey, you may need to rethink. Or yeah, I'll have to
2: be really careful in what I yes, say. Of course. Uh, but I'll tell you that from our PKI standpoint, our identity and access management, uh, 100%, we, we knocked it out of the park. From a CSSP, which is a cybersecurity service provider, we scored a 96%, uh, which means all of our policies, procedures, and our technologies and tactics for defending at the edge. You think about your secure, or your cybersecurity operations center, uh, we very good, some of our challenges internal uh, included you know the continuous monitoring pieces of, of patching, some stig compliance. Some of the things that uh, that tend to get you are uh, s- how you set up your vulnerability scans uh, and how you're monitoring there's two different ways to look at it and, and you really have to look at two different lenses you have to look at the lens of what do I, If I'm a system administrator, what should I be focusing on patching? And from a vulnerability management standpoint, what are my vulnerabilities? They're not always the same thing. Or how large is my vulnerability status? Uh, roll-up patching is one of those things that uh, definitely got us. That if we're just looking for roll-up patches, we're not looking at the true vulnerability of our network. Uh, where a roll-up patch may include six to eight different vulnerabilities, we're looking at it as one. When, in fact, that's uh, six to eight vulnerabilities, depending on the, the roll-up patch. So those are some things that uh, were challenges that uh, we're, we're closing in on.
1: And just one quick follow-up from you before we move to Dave. With all due respect to our friends in the auditing community, this is not the type of audit that says you were supposed to do a six-page discussion about your patching, and you only did five pages, so minus one. This is, this is the actual Process. This is this is not paper without compliance. This is sure. this is. Are you? How are you patching? Or how are you doing? What I mean, maybe offer a little detail about. Yeah,
2: that. Yeah, certainly. So there there were uh, vulnerability scans run across our entire NIPPER and ZIPPER fabric. So that's as you can imagine. NGA is a combat support agency is worldwide. Uh, so that's, uh, I'm not going to say how many systems, but it's a lot. That's some of the technical stuff. And then looking through manual STIG compliance on a subset of database servers, web servers, our entire DNS, our VoIP systems, uh, both at the uh, unclassified and classified levels. So it's, it was uh, pretty, in, I hate to use the word intrusive, <laughs> but it was a deep dive into our overall security posture.
1: All right. I'm sure there's more to talk about. I'm sure now you'll get lots of questions from the audience. We have to take a break. You're listening to an excerpt of a panel I moderated on DoD cybersecurity sponsored by FCA DC. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the FCA DC lunch. The panel featured Gary Buchanan, the Chief Information Security Officer at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, David McKeon, the Deputy CISO at the Defense Department, and Angel Fanef, the CISO at the Army Software Factory. For this segment, we hear from David McKeon from DOD. I'll
3: start out with uh, the DOD is obviously heavily engaged in Satisfying EO-14028, which is improving cybersecurity within the federal government. And recently, NSM-8, which applies to national security systems, came out and applied essentially the same or higher standards to all of our NSSs. So uh, we've been working uh, that hard delivering the cybersecurity solutions and reporting back to the National Security Council uh, and keeping Congress informed, too. Uh, One of the key elements of that is a move to zero trust, uh, which I'm sure we're all familiar with at this point. I arrived on the job uh, I think in the fall of the year that Solar Winds occurred. So very shortly thereafter, you know, there were lots of questions about Solar Winds, and uh, the department was already moving toward a zero trust architecture. Uh, very shortly after Solar Winds incident, luckily uh, we were not pwned within the department. But still, we, we got tons of questions and you know, had to prove that, uh, that we weren't pwned. We had to say that we, we could have easily also fallen victim and that the solution really was uh, moving to a zero-trust environment. Many of the companies that, that found the incidence of SolarWinds found it through many of the zero-trust concepts that we want to implement. So um, early in that year, we published a 160-page reference architecture, uh, which focuses on seven pillars – starting with the data, the user, the device, network, workloads, your servers and and such, and then also a layer of uh, logging and analytics and orchestration of events that will respond to the security threats. So we've been working that hard. We hired uh, Mr. Randy Resnick, who was leading a lot of the piloting efforts at NSA. Uh, He is now our Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office lead and we're augmenting him with staff so that we can implement zero trust throughout the department. We have 10,000 networks and systems registered in EMAS, and we have to make sure we zero trust all of those. It took Google 10 years to instantiate zero trust within their environment. We have to do that in, in a shorter time frame than that. And so Randy's going to orchestrate that working with the services. We went out and, and got $2 billion uh, reallocated within the department, to uh, start focusing on the first suite of capabilities, some enterprise capabilities like ICAM, data tagging, uh, things of that nature. We'll probably go back for more as we go forward, and we do intend to implement this across all of our information systems and networks uh, in the coming years. The goal is to try to do this by 27. Uh, We're going to prioritize the different systems and networks as we go along, and um, I think we're going to need help Uh, obviously, for various components because it's not a single solution uh, that satisfies this. It's a grouping of solutions that have to integrate well together, and we're not going to pick any particular product, and we're not going to demand that the services use any specific solution. If they want to consume an enterprise service that we have, that's great, Uh, but in the end, it's all about satisfying those seven pillars and having an integrated product that that gets to the heart of, of Zero Trust. Additionally, uh, in the vein of all the previous conversations, uh, RMF, the Risk Management Framework, is is heavily on our mind. Uh, We're about to publish a new iteration of 8510, which is our internal DoD uh, version of RMF, and that will be released. It's going to add a prepare step. Uh, It's going to focus more on integration with cyber ops before... You would certify and accredit a system. You would roll it out, and many of the cyber professionals out there, Cybercom, JFHQ, Doden, your CSSPs, were really not aware of the risks uh, in the system. So uh, we're adding some some flavor in there to tie those two together, the, the ops folks with the authorizing official. Additionally, uh, once we publish that, there's still some angst among many of the CISOs and AOs that RMF really isn't uh, getting done well throughout the department, and that's for a variety of reasons. So we're working with the CISOs from the various departments right now. They've got a Tiger team making some recommendations on things we can do better. We have some zealots out there when they do a security control assessment. They think that everything that's on the RMF knowledge service they have to do to the letter of the law. We're going to make some color coding to say these are absolute must-dos, and these are sort of optional so to encourage tailoring. Tailoring has been around forever, but people still choose not to use it. They would rather do all the controls and do them to the letter of the law, which can be costly and time-consuming. Additionally, you know, we'll probably come out with a memo based on what we're hearing from those CISOs, providing additional guidance and everything. Now, the thing that you've heard a couple of times here today is the CATO memo. I was glad to see nobody really raised their hand that that they've seen that yet, so (laughs) I I (laughs) want to talk about that. So, you know, I'm I'm the culprit behind that. Uh, In EMAS, some folks were checking the box that they they were having a CATO. Uh, We didn't have any well defined criteria for what would constitute issuance of a CATO. So this memo, first of all, defines three things that we're looking for. The first is continuous monitoring, which Nancy talked about, Gary talked about. Very vital that you you have that in your environment. Secondly, that you have coverage by an active defense, uh, so a cybersecurity service provider looking at possible intrusions into your enclave where your applications are hosted. And then lastly, the DevSecOps pipeline, to make sure that all the code that you develop gets fully security tested, both static and dynamic, before it goes into production. So those were the three criteria. I think everybody was pretty much on board with that. And this is use case number one, by the way. The memo says if anybody has another idea of how we can achieve continuous ATO, please bring it forward we'll discuss it with you. And I think the thing that causes the most angst is that I did say that I wanted to pull this back up to my level for a period of time so that jointly uh, the CISOs and the AOs could work together on defining what the criteria is for a CATO. Nancy clearly has a great continuous monitoring plan there, and I, I know that they have certified CSSPs on the job. They have a DevSecOps pipeline. What, what my goal is is to partner with those CISOs and the AOs, go out and uh, kick the tires on a few of these systems and environments uh, that, that we wanna issue CATOs in and then jointly make a decision that, that it does have a CATO. Eventually, once everybody understands what is CATOable and what is not, uh, then I'm gonna push back down the authorities for those CISOs and AOs to issue the, the CATOs. I think all AOs are not made equal uh, there are a lot of them that did their four hours of training and have no cybersecurity backgrounds and are very willing to check the CATO box because I'd never have to look at this again, and not even a three-year period, right? So this is just a level set. It's not to be draconian. I don't have anybody in mind that's actually offending me or, or did something wrong. It's just a level set across the board, and again, uh, if there are other use cases, and I'm thinking of one now, which is a zero-trust environment, we want to explore that. What would it take for that environment to get a CATO in the future? But uh, that's all I have.
1: All right. That was a lot. I could talk to you the rest of the day. (laughs) All right. Let's do a follow-up from what Nancy said. One of the things about the CATO memo was kind of the, the waiting of the next shoe, if you will. Okay how to implement the memo. Is there more, I'll use the term loosely, guidance coming or more kind of help coming to say, okay, here's what the standard baseline is or or what's coming next? I'll just leave it there.
3: Yeah, I think uh, there's already a good reference architecture for the DevSecOps environment. We partnered with the deputy CIO for Information Enterprise on that. Uh, So that set of guidelines is already out there for what the DevSecOps pipeline needs to look like. Continuous monitoring, obviously, you have a set of security controls that you have to meet. We would like to see automation where automation can occur, uh, where you're monitoring those security controls in that environment in an active manner. And the third one is really right now, all we're asking is that you have a cybersecurity service provider. Uh, So that's that's an easy one to check at this point in time. Pretty straightforward.
1: We have to take a break. You're listening to an excerpt of a panel I moderated on DoD Cybersecurity sponsored by FCADC. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the DC lunch. The panel featured Gary Buchanan, the Chief Information Security Officer at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, David McKeon, the Deputy CISO at the Defense Department, and Angel Faniff, the CISO at the Army Software Factory. For this segment, the panelists take questions from the audience. So let's start with the one thing that Nancy brought up, and let's go there first. And Angel, I'm going to start with you. Culture. I know you love talking about it. I know you've spent the last year, two, three, changing culture. One thing that Nancy talked about was the workforce, too. just give us a little sense of how you've been kind of pushing this, creating this new, hey, risk management culture, if you will.
0: So it's funny, uh, Nancy mentioned the channel. I'm in that channel. I didn't know you put it together. That's awesome. I pop in that channel and was like, this thing's great. I've gone back and forth with people. We've connected from there on LinkedIn, text message. So that's been a huge help. Thank you so much for that. Because we want to do something like that for a broader DoD. LinkedIn has been great for me. I actually have met a handful of people here on LinkedIn that have helped me a lot. And I've been able to help a lot. And that culture of being able to change mindsets or bounce ideas off of each other and help shift our narrative or how we're looking at things is so important. Nancy talked a lot about the, I feel like we need to just bring Nancy up here cause we just keep referring to Nancy <laughs> like over in the corner and we have like this chair. But she brought up like that bridge aspect. And uh, I try to be that bridge for a lot of people that I, I interact with. Um, and in that PSM channel, actually someone and I got into it a little bit a while ago and they were like, what's your number, I'm gonna call you. And we talked and we had such a great conversation and we were both wrong and we both came to a mutual understanding and agreement, which was great. And I think something like that, just being able to get out there and talk with people in the government we don't really have a space to communicate with other people that are working in the Navy or the Air Force unless you've worked with them or you have a connection with them or unless you meet them on LinkedIn. Like I met Chris Thomas on LinkedIn. He's helping me kick off the NSA partnership for Zero Trust for the Army Software Factory. Uh, Julie, who's here, uh, we've talked a lot about how we're gonna do S bombs, both from different perspectives and learn from each other. So I would ask all of you that are in the community, in the DOD or around our ecosystem, to not just sell us something, but to actually help and help us create this culture because you are all supporting the culture around the DoD. You might be working for a vendor, and yes, you might want to sell us something, uh, but you're also helping feed this ecosystem that continues to go on. And that's something I'm very passionate about, and I'd love to have more of you all out there being champions for changing this culture. One thing that I do see is the legacy mindset. It's scary. Technology changes at a rapid pace these days. We can't keep up. Uh, Every day, there's something new coming out. I'm tagged on LinkedIn maybe 20 times a day about this new vulnerability, this new thing, this new that, is help each other out. Tag me in those posts. Maybe I need to see it. Log4J was a great example. I was tagged in Log4J posts on LinkedIn before the official guidance came out. And multiple people within my organization saw that as well. And creating this culture where we can help each other, I think that's just something I'm doing and I'd love to have all of you be a part of that and help us with that as well.
1: Gary or Dave, you want to jump in on the culture piece? I mean, it's not yeah. just something for the, the, the fun, fun people at the software factory with people yeah, on yeah. tables. Yeah, real
2: quick, I, it's great meeting Angel here in person today. I did not connect with her on LinkedIn.
0: I connected um, with you. I sent uh, you a request.
2: So so one of the things that's... Uh, that's
0: Dave accepted my request.
2: And I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, Get I, Gary's busy, come on. Per, perhaps I am that old, tie school, tie. that old school dinosaur where um, my, my social media president says that I work for Vandalay Industries. i <laughs>
0: will bring you um, along.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I applaud you for doing it. I'm, I'm just still kind of that, that's the intel officer in me that's a, a little bit uh, weary about connecting with people I've never met. Um, so I applaud you for doing it. As far as culture goes, one of the, uh, the, the pieces that, that I'm combating with right now is program management culture, you know, cost performance schedule. And cost performance schedule, where is security in that? It's not necessarily in there. And it, traditionally, what we have done as leaders is reward reward program managers who get their stuff out quick. People love it. it costs just a little bit of money and what do we do with those program managers? We give them more money. There was never the question on how secure was it? How are you keeping it up to date? How are you monitoring that that application or whatever it is that you put up and so that's really a, a culture change that we're working at ngA we're having a cyber risk management slide for every single program or application at NGA. So once a year, they come before our CIO, and it's, hey, this is how I'm doing with costs, my performance, here's my challenges. By the way, here's my cyber risk posture. And that, that slide is not put together by them, that's put together by my team. So that's, a, that's an opportunity to highlight stellar performers from a cyber perspective, and those who need some help from a cyber perspective.
1: Dave, I have questions for the audience. Unless you want to jump in, I do want to give kudos to
3: the whole Department of Defense. Um, you know, I've been in cyber for, for many, many years. Uh, the stand up of Cybercom, JFHQ, Doden, everybody down to you know the lowest level enlisted person, uh, really, I think has embraced a culture of of cybersecurity. After the Solar Winds incident, when I started going to ask for money for zero trust, I, I literally was. Pushing on open doors uh, with senior leaders in the department. Uh, they want to know, you know how to get after this problem. So uh, I think it's great. Uh, I think we're seeing that with our industry partners as well. It is very important. I don't know if you're tracking the CISA Shields Up campaign where they, they sent out cybersecurity messaging to basically the whole industry base of the, uh, the United States. Uh, great, great efforts and uh, great progress in cybersecurity overall.
1: All right. We have a question from the audience. Michael writes, how do we, as a community of government and industry, support the journey to zero trust? It appears to take years to accomplish. Guarding the existing castle while implementing new analytics capabilities need to be coupled, but also appear to be disjointed. So maybe, Dave, since you brought up the wonderful buzzword of zero trust. Yeah, they,
3: they are definitely coupled. You know, the, the zero trust products, we, we feel like we already have some of them in place. We need to scale them. Uh, so we're not going to rip and replace everything. While we do evolve, uh, we're going to make sure that we, uh, at, at the very least, use our old perimeter defense and signature base uh, things until we can fully guarantee that uh, the data is behind a zero-trust architecture. So we're not stopping anything that we're doing as far as uh, accreditations, active defenses. Eventually, we'll evolve away from the perimeter defense and I think we'll still employ signatures throughout. I mean, why not? Uh, if you have the signature, use it. But we're going to be moving more to behavioral-based uh, analysis in the future as well.
1: Anyone else want to kind of talk a little bit about the to be and as is?
2: First, you have to know what you have, right? And, and that's always been on the SANS top, top ten, know what you have. I really think the most important part here, and as is, is yet one of the hardest parts, is the data portion of it. Why do we care who our users are and why do we care about our perimeters if we don't have data that somebody wants or can use or exploit or, or anything like that? So from my perspective, the data is where you have to get it right. Um, I've, I've used this analogy before, so I apologize if you've heard me speak, but we tend to be like an M&M. We're hard and crunchy on the outside and really gooey on the inside. Um, and that gooey part is, everybody loves it, that's our data. Right, So we need to uh, focus on knowing what the data is, knowing how to protect it, segregating it, micro-segmentation through the, the networks, and really get a hold of our data stores. Otherwise, why would you bother breaking into a network if there wasn't data you wanted? Or pivoting laterally through the network, for that matter.
0: From the Army Software Factory, I'd say we're going through all of the documentation now and we're making our plan. We're making sure that it works for our developers, our end users, and our platform engineers as well. Uh, That's the most important part. I think a lot of the times in the past cybersecurity has put solutions in place and hasn't really thought about the people that are using it. So we're trying to make sure that our implementation and our process doesn't impact our ability to deploy apps, but keeps us safe and secure. So it's uh, everyone in the Army Software Factory is involved in our zero trust effort.
1: All right, we have a live question.
0: Hi, Sarah Friedman, inside cybersecurity. Dave, can you talk more about how SBOM can fit into your efforts, um, continuous monitoring, and how? that can be deployed, especially because that's in the executive order that you mentioned as well.
3: Yeah, SBOM is, is very important. Uh, we've actually received a couple of demos recently of companies that are, are doing this quite well. You can establish an SBOM inventory of all your software on the network. Uh, if a Log4J pops up, uh, you can query and see all of the components of all the software that you have running and, and better enumerate. Log4J is prime example of why you need uh, an SBOM, because... It, through searching and uh, scanning the networks, it's hard to know whether or not it was embedded in the software that's on your network. So we also want to, through our DevSecOps pipeline, always create an s bomb. So anything that we create, we're going to have that. But for commercial products, I believe industry partners are on board with this as well, publishing an s bomb. We will then have to ingest those if if we purchase their software. And there's versioning problems, right, because each version of software has uh, different builds. So it's a lot to track. It's going to take a database. It's going to take a a good system uh, to ingest. Hopefully there's going to be an interchange of data out there where uh, companies can publish their SBOM and all that gets freely shared and and you can do your queries. But definitely a key part because it is really getting hard to figure out where this uh, software is embedded inside your, your apps.
1: Angel, you also mentioned SBOM. Do you want to touch upon that?
0: So we do have a solution in place. I'm not saying it's great, and we can definitely improve. When Log4J hit, we were able to leverage part of what we had to be able to find those vulnerabilities immediately and remediate that. We're a very small shop still, so it was much easier for us to do than traditional systems that are much larger. I think that S-Bonds and Zero Trust, we have to look at it as not only solutions that we're implementing, but these are changing the way we do business. This is not something that we're doing now and we're checking the box. This is something we will consistently have to do and just bring it along. So uh, I would just say to everyone, hey, it's not a new buzzword that we're just going to take and we do it, check it off once, and it's gone. We have to continuously put this into our processes and continue to build on it and carry it with us because we can implement something. If you don't take care of it, you don't maintain and feed it, it will die, it will not have the right stuff. So being able to bring it along through that process is really going to help us.
1: We have to take a break. You're listening to an excerpt of a panel I moderated on DoD Cybersecurity, sponsored by FCA DC. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the DC lunch. The panel featured Gary Buchanan, the Chief Information Security Officer at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, David McKeon, the Deputy CISO at the Defense Department, and Angel Fanef, the CISO at the Army Software Factory. For this segment, the panelists continue to take questions from the audience. Andy writes, as the Army moves towards agile acquisition of software, is there a plan in place or steps we can take to facilitate agile rapid RMF? Can we um, focus the question just for you, though, at the Army Software Factory? Is there a way that you're implementing a more agile RMF through Army Software?
0: Absolutely. So we actually took all of the controls and we pared them down to what we could group together and what we could answer. We figured out which controls we could automate with the tools that we had or tools that we needed to purchase or vet to be able to bring in. We've automated a lot of those controls already from the platform standpoint and from the application standpoint. So to be able to do continuous RMF, I'd say we're continuously improving on this journey. We're doing a really good job right now. Um, Our application security validation engineers go through and check to make sure that our tools are doing the right things that they're supposed to be doing and that the applications are doing the right things they're supposed to be doing. Uh, And we're continuously visiting those controls and answering those controls with our automation.
1: Gary or Dave, you want to weigh in just more broadly than just the Army?
3: Yeah, I will weigh in. I mean, I'm supportive of it. Uh, The CATO criteria that we defined kind of had these software factories kind of at, at the heart of it. And as a result of that, when you go through that DevSecOps pipeline that is in this CATO environment. No reason why automatically, once the static and dynamic testing of software is done, uh, that that can't receive an ATO the same day. So we're definitely supportive of it, and that's where we want to go. So, so my problem
2: is similar but different. Uh, my challenge is taking something like Angel has done and making everybody use it within NGA. So DevOps pipeline, there's dozens of them and we're, uh, we're trying to consolidate to one, one that you can inherit the controls off of. We've authorized the entire pipeline, and, and, you know, by a developer using that, they have all the shared resources. They're able to promote code easier. We can actually move code between classification domains if they use the, the, uh, the specific one that we've designated, and then they can bonus off all the controls that we've already authorized. So a little bit different challenge,
1: but similar. All okay, right, we have another question from the audience. Hi, Tom Michelli from Leidos, this is for any of you
3: that when I respond to it. Indicator and warning, Intel guy, right? I keep hearing more and more about resilience. So how do you build resilience into uh, the continuous ATO process, into the software build? What are you
2: thinking about as far as resilience as you, as you move forward?
3: Well, I'm going to go ahead and kind of point to the Air Force, uh, Cloud One, Platform One. You know, I looked at their architecture. It, it is a resilient architecture. they Cloud native, and they've they've striped their platform across three different cloud providers. Uh, If there's an instance of a problem on one uh, or two, even right, they're still alive and well and and operating. So I I think that's that's a good step. Is that redundancy that you build into your systems and ability to cut over, and not only that, but the ability to live scale uh, if you need to add more and more bandwidth and customers and workloads uh, as desired. That's the one example I would point to uh, that we kind of need to go to. There's probably lots of applications and systems that are single-threaded and really probably wouldn't survive right now uh, because of that. But I think that based on the confidentiality, integrity, availability, the availability piece uh, is where this comes in. And uh, designers, architects uh, need to kind of build that
2: resiliency in. Yeah, I'll, I'll chime in on that as well. You're, you're touching a piece of my heart right now when you, when you talk about resilience. You, you know, if you think back 15 years ago where you said that server does this, that server does that, you know, this is this is where my database is, that's gone, right? And unfortunately, we still have some folks thinking like that. Uh, the fact of the matter is, when we build systems, we need to build them so they can cut over immediately. A current challenge I'm having, uh, or have been having, with the Russia-Ukraine crisis is uh, we were in what's called a period of non-disruption, a pond, where we don't make any changes so that we can actively support the warfighter. And that is obviously needs to be done, but there are pieces of that. There are security uh, uh, updates that need to be done, patching, block and tackle, that need to be done during a pond. And so when, when I have folks tell me I can't take down that system to reboot it because the pond, it just points to you don't have a resilient architecture, right? If, you're, if your system is that important that you need it 24-7, no downtime, then you sure as hell better have a, have a way to swing users over to another live box, right? So resiliency, very important. With the cloud the way it is and our multi-cloud architectures, there is no reason to not build a system that has, uh, has a great deal of, deal of resiliency for less money.
0: So right. we say we have to be as resilient as Netflix, because when Netflix goes down, the world is completely disrupted. So unless we can be as resilient as Netflix, that's our goal. All
1: right, Dave, we have a question for you that I was going to ask you, but uh, I asked you a different one. So uh, John writes, you talked about the 2027 timeline for implementing Zero Trust for DOD. You mentioned prioritizing implementation. How are you prioritizing
3: well it's it's going to be based again on the accreditation type for the systems so if if it's a, a low 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 in RMF terms that's going to probably be at the bottom of the stack uh, We're going to focus on anything that's that's high 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 we're going to look at national security systems, focus on securing them, and uh, you know if we can get large swaths of enterprise services covered, for instance, DISA has a plan to cover their whole entire environment and all of the fourth estate customers with Zero Trust. Uh, it's a initiative called Thunderdome. We're going to do that all in one fell swoop and, and capture a lot of, uh, of people and, and clients there.
1: You mentioned thund- Thunderdome. Of course, we got a question about that. So uh, uh, Dean writes, uh, how will the Air Force CNAP program in production assist in accelerating DISS' Thunderdome?
3: Yeah, I don't think there's an intent right now. I know that we've definitely put forth Platform One, Cloud One as an exemplar for others to kind of mimic. And I know the Navy is doing something similar. Army is doing something similar with their software factories. But I don't know that there's any uh, intent by DISA. I haven't seen it to, to use CNET.
1: Got a good uh, a live question.
3: Uh, this is for Dave. Dave, do you know whether DOD contractors will be subject to the FAR Uh, rulemakings, the new FAR amendments that are coming out of the executive order, uh, like standardization of clauses and incident reporting and stuff like that, or will DOD continue to have its own set of clauses and regulations? I believe it will cascade down. Those will be FAR rules. They will become DFAR rules. We'll have to look for uh, existing things that we've already done. Uh, maybe it will be an exact match, maybe not. We may have to rescind some of those uh, other ones to, to follow the new federal guidance. But it's a federal initiative led by uh, the National Security Council and the President. So, uh, you know, our intent is to, to comply with that uh, in the fullest.
1: And I think the concern would be the flow down, right? You can't have how many people only work for DOD, how many contractors, very few, I would say. Absolutely. But we want to not cause confusion. Uh, another question from Kirk. He writes, uh, zero-trust architectures appear to be incredibly disruptive to RMF and current DoD policy around ATO or CATO. In theory, any trustworthy, in theory, any untrustworthy app should pose no risk to a well-designed ZTA framework. What changes do you perceive are necessary to current policies?
3: Well, I, I don't agree with the premise. SolarWinds software could still be inside of a zero trust environment. You won't stop it. Uh, You may detect it earlier and be able to respond faster. That was a big problem in the past, where if somebody did fish you and got a foothold on your network, uh, they could escalate privileges, move around, uh, live on your network for potentially years before you discover them. And then by the time you discover them, you don't know what they took. You don't know where they went. So This is about earlier discovery. It isn't going to stop everything, but it hopefully is going to be a a much more rigorous set of tripwires in your environment that that something is going to trigger that's going to make you pay attention to it and understand that they're there.
1: And and really, the the goal of Zero Trust in many ways is to stop that lateral movement, right? You can get into one, but can you get into two? Well, Dave doesn't have access to... System 2, then you get a roadblock. I right. mean, is, is that the discussions? Maybe Gary and, and Angel can jump in here. Is that the discussions when you talk zero trust internally within your own organizations that that's really the end goal is, is not just?
3: Yeah, to limit movement is, is also a goal for sure. And we've done segmentation in the past, but not as religiously as we want to do it in this circumstance. Uh, so you want to segment your workloads. You want to seg- segment your network and, and restrict uh, any lateral movement. And, and credential elevation as well.
2: I don't expect any changes that we're going to loosen up the, uh, the rules for how you harden your application uh, based on the zero trust and, and, uh, and the, that theory. I mean, why wouldn't we still continue to harden our applications? Why wouldn't we still uh, authorize the applications? You still want to know what's there uh, so that you can know what you, what, your, what, you can, what you can and should restrict from that application. So uh, as soon as you put an application on that you have no rules, that's a problem.
3: Yeah, I mean, a, a parallel thought to the question is, would we stop patching because we have a zero-trust environment? And no, we wouldn't. You want your existing tools to kind of knock down the ash and trash uh, and make your job easier and, and being able to discover truly new and different anomalous behavior. So I, I wouldn't want to drop a, an unapproved app in my environment, and, and I think it's great that we're focusing on it with industry, to improve the way that they develop apps, and we can we can kind of see uh, the components of the software. And I think I think uh, it would be bad to just drop software inside our environment uh, that hasn't been tested and proven to be secure.
1: All right, a couple other questions just came in. Uh, one from Tyler: With the DoD struggling for true federation, how do we plan on succeeding in a hybrid cloud model? I guess around cyber, RMF, zero trust, fill in the blank.
2: Yeah, so, so I'll chime in with uh, one piece, C2E, which I'm sure many of you guys know, the, the hybrid cloud uh, that, uh, contract that was signed with Oracle and Microsoft and, and uh, AWS and IBM. I think I might be missing one. Uh, one of the challenges that I'm seeing with that from a cyber perspective is uh, the security stack associated with each cloud. Speaking you know, from my agency specifically, uh, we've been working with AWS for a number of years, Uh, We understand the native applications that we're using inside the cloud uh, that can deliver data back to our cybersecurity operations center. Um, As we take those uh, pieces and you add additional clouds, uh, the challenge that I'm seeing is data overload um, and understanding what those native applications are within each cloud, how they interrelate with the other clouds, and how I bring that back again so I can find a needle in the needle stack. Uh, Just one that is, you know, one millimeter smaller than every other needle. That's the challenge that I'm seeing from the multi-cloud.
1: That's all the time we have for today. For this program, I played an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the recent FCA DC lunch. The panel featured Gary Buchanan, the Chief Information Security Officer at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, David McKeon, the Deputy CISO at the Defense Department, and Angel Fanoff, the CISO for the Army Software Factory. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network.
0: You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.